heard a few new faces about. I just wanted to do a wee quick recap over what we have been looking at as a church from Easter up until now. The title of our series has been Spirit Breakout. And we have been really carefully examining the story of the early church and how spirit-inspired relationships and structures were really key to the continued growth of the kingdom. I think we can all give a big yes to the fact that God's really doing something among us at the moment. And um, it feels to me a little bit like our story's kind of coming into alignment um, with the story of the early church in Acts. And, and, and all of, of the ways that the Spirit architected that church, it kind of feels like our story's being woven into that a little bit. Um, and as we step into more of what God is trying to unfold in and through the wider body of all of the Emmanuel and Tabar churches, it seems really obvious to me that, that God is stirring up something in the kingdom and we can't deny that we're a part of something that is just so much bigger than ourselves. You know, we're in a part of this heaven-inspired movement. And we know um, from the book of Acts that we have been pulling apart in lots of different ways that as the movement expands, we're going to see more people join us. We're going to see a lot more people sent out from us. But this is the big one, and that's, this is what I want to press into you about this morning, that we're going to need to see a lot more people in our own body step up into the God role that is on their life. So today I'm going to look at um, a new wave of leaders, but... It's my hope today that you don't switch off on that. It's, I want, and I think God really wants every heart to engage today um, because it's more of a big call out to the whole body than it is specifically just to leaders today because uh, we need what you have to bring to the table. I know Debbie won't mind me saying this, but Kingdom Kids are currently working in deficit. They're about 10 volunteers short. <clears throat> there's, there's four people with legitimate very legitimate reasons are like going to Spain and being missionaries and about to have babies and they need to step down and so that's absolutely fair dues. So we, we need um, four more volunteers to be on once a month but we need six more volunteers to be on once every eight weeks which isn't terribly much of a big ask really and actually Debbie has said for those who could volunteer um once every eight weeks, literally, it's just for child protection purposes. It's not like big preparation has to go into anything. It's just to keep our numbers right. So, that you know, if we want this movement to accomplish all that we feel God wants us to do, if we want to honor our kids really well, we need, we need more people to step up to that. And that's not to say that we're asking those who do loads already to keep doing more, okay? We just need everybody to kind of feel and examine their own heart and see what the Holy Spirit is saying to them about that because we do need what you have to bring. In order for the movement to continue to progress, we need everyone functioning their gifts and their own level of personal leadership. So we've unpacked a lot of Act 6. We've looked at this a lot, and I'm going to go back into it again, again a wee bit this morning. When the seven new leaders have been chosen, <clears throat> and what we see from then on is how God really unfolds his plans step by step, little by little. We know that the Spirit breaks out, which, as um, Debbie and Chris brought us into a lot, really um, led to the signs and wonders breaking out among the people. And then Stephen showed us how this inevitably led to the kickback of persecution because the enemy realized that what was happening was the real deal, that the body of Christ was on the move and that the Holy Spirit actually meant business. And he was very threatened by that and didn't like it. So today I'd like to, to take a 
little meander through the book of Acts with a couple of jumps around the Old Testament just to explain what I really sense God's calling out today in each and every one of us. So try your best to stay with me if you can. Like they say on that Disney ride, hold on to your hats and glasses. We're about to jump around all over the place here. So in Act 6, um, the passage that we've been looking at, and I'm really going to bomb through the Bible passages today because I realize that I have a lot to get through. So um, we've looked at this a lot when the seven had to be chosen. And it's important to really remember that this actually happened... There, they, those people who know a lot more than I do, reckon that this happened six to eight years after the church had been established. So it had been going for a wee while. It had probably found its groove. There were a few structures in place. But um, Luke repeatedly draws our attention to the fact that the church was growing. So let's take a wee look at this. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm going to speed read. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. So brothers, select seven men who are well-respected, who are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then the apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea. Then they chose the following men, all of those guys. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So as I said, Luke repeatedly draws our attention to the fact that the church has grown. That's what Jesus' intention was. It was the Great Commission. But we have to be really clear about the fact that this wasn't an effortless process. This didn't just happen. Um, There were bumps in the road. People disagreed and parted company. You only have to read further into the book of Acts to see that. The seven Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Jews, which had been selected, those guys were responsible for the issue of distributing the food. But I suspect that that was actually just a surface thing because they were also responsible for rewriting the kingdom values back into what had become a very imbalanced culture that was growing and leading, leaning more towards the side of the Jews. In essence, what these guys were doing was helping to establish a whole new heavenly culture that at its heart was really intent on seeking God's kingdom first, above everything else. These seven were breakthrough people whose responsibility it was to sustain what had already been developed. They had to keep the movement moving. That's said a lot around here, isn't it? They had to keep the movement moving and not allow it to get stuck on every wee snag that presented itself. So the three characteristics of the leaders in Act 6 that we want to take a wee minute to look at is the first one, it says good character in another translation of the Bible. Good character is is um, something that just speaks for itself, doesn't it? It kind of means that they're trustworthy, honest, and integrity is really key to their lives, that you know that you could trust them with a secret. You know that you could trust them with money. You know you can trust them with people's hearts. The next point that um, was um, really important for the seven was that they had to be full of the spirit. This is a big one. There has to be evidence of an ongoing work of the Spirit deep in the hearts of people. You have to see people who are going to step into leadership becoming and looking more like Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean they have to be perfect by any means at all. Um, Goodness knows I'm not. But there has to be evidence of the power of the Spirit in their lives. And then the third thing that they asked to be um, identified in these guys was that they had to be full of wisdom. So the Greek word for wisdom is the word Sophia. 
and what it really means is the, the wise use or application of truth to the details of one life. In other words, it just means that, not just, it's a pretty big one, that you had to imitate Christ. That there had to be a real legitimate Christ-like change in your life. So when these seven were selected, it wasn't about popularity and who was very charismatic and could hold the crowd really well. What it actually was about character and connectedness to God. And as I reflected on these passages and how practically that would have looked, I realized that sometimes, and I, I hope you all agree with me on this one, that we can see that in people these um, characteristics can kind of be a wee bit out of balance that um, sometimes you can see someone who's really full of the Spirit and they're so fired up for the Lord, but sometimes they lack a wee bit of wisdom and just bomb straight on into something that they shouldn't bomb into. Occasionally from time you know someone who is really wise and has good character, but there's not an awful lot of um, Holy Spirit activity going on in their lives. And so it's really, really important that these things had to be in balance for the seven if they were going to continue to help the, the movement to move. Oswald Chambers says it way better than I could. He says, <clears throat> Behind the action of the apostles, the executive activity of the Spirit is seen everywhere. Okay? So the apostles were the administrators of what the Spirit was actually up to. As supreme administrator of the church and chief strategist of the missionary enterprise, the Holy Spirit had to inspire the selection of these leaders, primarily because of their genuine spirituality. When a church or other Christian organization departs from that pattern, it amounts to a virtual ousting of the Spirit from his place of leadership. And as a consequence, he's grieved and quenched with resulting spiritual dearth and death. It's totally pointless coming here on a Sunday if the Spirit's not in it. We can all come and be nice to each other and have a good time. But it's totally, totally pointless doing this without him. This, he has to be central to everything that we're doing. Otherwise, it's just a... A clanging symbol, isn't it? <clears throat> and so back to the issue in Act 6, we've had a really super, super teaching on this passage, and we have unpacked the issue of sectarianism a lot, and, and what our response should be should issues of a similar kind of nature arise. But I wanted to take a second and actually imagine what it would look like having to deal with the issue of the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Jews, actually being penalized by the Hebraic Jews. It, it almost was like a, an unspoken hierarchy existed. These seven men had to wade right into the mess of tribalism, of elitist sectarian thinking. They had to stare religion straight in the face. They had to eyeball it. And then they had to fully rely on divine wisdom and grace from the Holy Spirit for there to be a good outcome. The whole thing could have fallen apart and turned into a bit of a mess. But the Holy Spirit was behind all of the strategies that, that they used to see a good outcome. The seven had to ensure that they didn't dilute the truth to suit, what, um, <clears throat> to suit others, which could very easily have happened. Their responsibility was to administer the truth through their behaviors, through their attitudes, and through their actions. They essentially had to navigate sensitively their way through the rumblings and murmurings, all the while keeping their ear open to heaven to hear what God had to say about it. Because you see the kerygma, We've touched on that before, the pure teachings of Jesus, that's what the kerygma is. They were not to be compromised for the sake of quickly settling politics. Essentially, what was happening here among these people was, a, it just flew in the face of everything that Jesus came to proclaim. <clears throat> it could, and it couldn't continue that way. The church was not going to go any further. It wasn't going to get past this issue if it wasn't dealt with. 
And it actually had the potential to become a bit of a distraction to the apostles because their primary role was to give themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This issue had the potential to seriously impinge upon the growth of the church. And we can see in verse 7 that the apostles obviously continued to focus, thankfully, on keeping the main thing the main thing. They devoted themselves to the heart of what Jesus came to proclaim. They literally lived and breathed prayer and the word. And they were so caught up in the importance of that, that the direct overflow of that then became the the growth of the church. You can see in Acts 6-7, it says that the word of God spread further. The group of followers became much larger in Jerusalem and many of the religious leaders believed in the faith of the Christians. This was so significantly huge. Many of the religious leaders would have been those who were originally against Jesus. And now, because of the work of the Holy Spirit and really good, healthy, Holy Spirit-inspired structures being put into place, the religious walls that they had built up around themselves just began to crumble. The Holy Spirit shed his light on all of the passages of scriptures that they would have known so well. And he connected all of the dots to show that the big picture of what they were actually living for was Jesus and that he was the Messiah. So the overflow of the apostles devoting themselves to prayer and the word and preaching then was this huge group of priests, despite the cost of what that meant for them, that they believed the culture at their time would have um, really not taken well to the fact that they were leaving their identity as Jewish people behind and becoming followers of the way. It would have cost them greatly, but they couldn't help but realize that this is what they were meant to live for. And you see, there's a danger sometimes that circumstances can pull people out of their call into essentially what should be someone else's call. The apostles could have been totally distracted by this issue and they could have taken a step off course um, from prayer and from the word to deal with this issue. But I think Luke's actually really clever. He exposes the warts and all version of the church. And also then he exposes the strategy as how to best deal with the day-to-day issues that come up. And that let's just face it, are just a part of normal life. It's really evident that the apostles first had their hearts transformed completely by the spirit. But then they had to continue to get Holy Spirit-inspired revelation. You know when you've got your, if you have an iPhone, and this really does my head in, but you get this, it's time for an update. And I keep hitting cancel on it because it's so inconvenient. And I kind of feel, you know, this analogy just came to me about this, but I feel like um, sometimes the updates from the Holy Spirit to update within us can be inconvenient, but we need to not press cancel on that. We need to not... Um, just see it as an inconvenience. We need to be open to what the Spirit has to say in those most inconvenient moments. And I think that's what the apostles were all about. They were constantly being updated in their innermost beings. And of the seven that were chosen, the two then that we know most about are Stephen and Philip, because it goes on to mention them further in the book of Acts. If we first of all take a look at Stephen, because his story is a lot shorter than Philip's. Um, In Acts 6, 8, it says that Stephen was full of grace and power and he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. It then goes on to say that just before he was addressing the Sanhedrin, just before he then was stoned to death, that he was full of grace. He had power, wisdom, and the spirit. There's those characteristics again that would have been mentioned right back at the start of Act 6. Those, those remained consistent in Stephen's life. And because they were so evident in his life, Stephen was released to perform great wonders and signs among the people. This move of the spirit really stirred up the religious crowd whose identity was fully, fully submerged in their cultural and 
historical story as Jewish people. Their history was how they perceived themselves and how they perceived others. So they were so threatened by this new message, which we learned last week was that God came and became a person and dwelt among them. And it cost Stephen his life. But you know what? I think that's kind of the epitome of good leadership, that you're willing to lay your life down for something, no matter what the cost is. And look at what it says then happened after that. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission, that the gospel was to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? So remember, these apostles and leaders, they were just unschooled, ordinary men. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like that. Never, well, I can't say I've never been to Bible college. We have, actually. But um, not for a very long time. But um, sometimes you just kind of feel a wee bit like a fisherman, you know, that you're just doing the day-to-day stuff. But I identify so much with the apostles and these leaders. They were just unschooled, ordinary men. But here's the thing. They'd spent time with Jesus. And that's what transformed their life. They didn't have a step-by-step guide as to how to architecture the church. There weren't any Bill Hybels books published at that time on good leadership principles or anything like that. What these guys were, were pioneers. They cut, they were cutting-edge people. They cut through the social structures at that time to really bring the church forward, obviously with the help of the Holy Spirit. And then notice who, who were scattered. It says, all except the apostles were scattered. So the ordinary believers, just like you, just like me, went on their way, but they were so fired up and had the love of Jesus burning so deeply in their hearts that they they couldn't help but proclaim the message of the good news wherever they went. It just kind of happened. It bubbled out of them. And that's the end of Stephen's story. (laughs) So this then leads us on to Philip. Philip was, we know him as Philip the Evangelist, and he was responsible for the really big revival that happened in Samaria. So we're going to take a wee look at that. This is quite a long passage, so again, I'm going to speed read for the sake of time. It says that Philip went down to a city in Samaria and preached the Messiah to them. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And so there was great joy in the city. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and it had astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest and they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. I'm going to need a drink because I'm parched. So excuse me a minute. It says that the crowds paid attention to him with one mind. Obviously, the people in Samaria were drawn to the supernatural. But unfortunately, it was just the wrong kind of supernatural. So when Philip came and he spoke the truth of good, healthy, supernatural kind of stuff, it quenched the longing that was deep inside these people. And their hearts were filled. It filled that spiritual vacuum that was just waiting to be filled. And I think it shows in Samaria, but I think it can also line up with where we are at the moment, that there's a bit of a spiritual deficit. In fact, there's not a bit. There's a significant spiritual deficit out there. It doesn't take you very much scrolling through Facebook to see that there are tarot readers, that there are clairvoyants coming up on the buy, swap, and sell pages. And I actually know people who are asking for some kind of spiritual input but it is so dangerous and such the wrong kind of spiritual input. 
And all we have to do, and maybe I need to get a little bit better about this, is show them the truth of that kind of spiritual input. God can give a word of knowledge to somebody who really wants it, you know. And not that we can just, you know, get the Holy Spirit to show up just, you know, at any moment to, um, to dance to our tune or anything like that. But I think we can see in our town and in our city that people are crying out for some kind of spiritual connection. And we actually have the answer to that. It then says that Philip performed great miracles, specifically healing miracles. The signs and wonders that were happening at that time, the lame being able to walk again, it really caught the attention of the crowd. <clears throat> and again, for our town, imagine if that could actually happen. But I think God can still do that. In fact, I believe that he's actually going to do that. I have this stirring on my heart that I feel like, <sighs> do you mind if I use it? Imagine if Vivian got out of a wheelchair and walked the whole town would be talking about it. The whole town would, would the, the Holy Spirit would have the attention of the whole, time, the whole town. But that's actually what happened in Samaria. This actually really happened. This is just one line in the Bible, but it actually really happened. And sometimes we can just gloss over it and read over it. And it, it just kind of doesn't even register this. But this actually happened and it caught the attention of the town. The next thing that happened with Philip was that they, he brought, he along with the Holy Spirit, helped bring freedom from demonic oppression and strongholds. And Simon the sorcerer was principally the one who was responsible for a lot of that kind of stuff. For a long time, the people in the city, they had been held captive by a power that presented itself as a strong thing, as God. They worshipped it. They worshipped something, again, that presented itself as God. But then when they saw the freedom that could come in the one true God, it shone a light on and exposed all of the systematic strongholds that had been put in place in that area to keep them down. And again, I believe that's happening here. I think it's happening in our own body. I believe that that God has given people discernment to see what has taken his place in the hearts of the people of our time. Like we don't have to go very far to see the whole of drugs, self-harm, alcohol, strong cultural and religious organizations, even social media has on people. We don't have to go very far outside the door to see that those things, those systematic strongholds, are operating, but what we need is the love of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to come and shine a light on those things so that people can actually see them for what they are. And then here was the outcome. There was great joy in the city. They and we can now realize how blinded they had been, how tricked they had been. And I think in the context of the move of God that we are experiencing at the moment, that we are beginning, I think we're like kind of on the cusp or on the edge of that where we live and I'm daring to believe with, some might think naive, but I think bold faith that there's going to be great joy in our city because of what Jesus is going to do. And so because the church was scattered, Philip had to step up. Remember Philip who was serving tables at the beginning and sorting out some arguments among some women? But now he was preaching. He had been promoted. He was key to miracles and deliverance happening, which was all a far cry from the beginning of Act 6. And I believe, when I look at Philip, that God really honored Philip's attitude, that he saw a meekness and a humility in Philip that ran in parallel with his hunger for the things of God. And in his faithfulness, in the small things, God promoted him to much bigger things. All this and everything that Philip did cleared the road then for the apostles to come. Philip was actually a really significant and key person to till the soil and to 
to just clear all of that religious and cultural debris out of the way so that the good news of Jesus could have good ground to be cemented in. So when you see what happens next, <clears throat> the apostles who were at Jerusalem, so remember the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not come down in any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The apostles still had their finger on the pulse of the movement and they saw their role as those who would go and really embed the Holy Spirit into the things that had already begun. So when Peter and John arrived, the people knew about and were open to Jesus, but then came the power because it says that they hadn't been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet. This is so key because it highlights the importance of why we need to stay in step and continually have that infilling of the Spirit. We need to hear what God has to say to make sure that we have the right structures in place for the catch that's coming. And it's also worth noting that Philip, <coughs> I really love this point, um, Philip isn't usurped by Peter and John when they arrive, but he takes a step back and takes the position of supporting them. He wasn't precious about the ministry that was going on in Samaria because actually it wasn't his ministry at all. It was the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so when the angel of the Lord came and told him to move, he did. And he positioned himself specifically where he had been instructed, which was on the road that leads south to Gaza. Now, again, let's get ready for speed reading. Acts 8, 26 to 30. And the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go down and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to the desert Gaza. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and a high official of that lady, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? Now, thankfully... <laughs> Philip was invited into the chariot. I don't know how it would have gone had he not have been invited into the chariot. I imagine he would have run out of breath. But he was invited into the chariot to explain to the Ethiopian eunuch how the book of Isaiah pointed to Jesus being the Messiah. He had a divine appointment with a high official who was in charge of the Ethiopian treasury. This wasn't just some average vill villager person, right? This man held influence at government level. And humble Philip, one of our seven who started off sorting out issues about food, is now a key influence in the gospel being shared to the outermost regions of Ethiopia because he was brave enough to trust the nudges that he was receiving from the Holy Spirit and set down the ministry in Samaria when he was told to set it down. Because Philip's priority was always God getting the glory. He didn't seek after it for himself in any way because his motives were entirely pure and how do we know that? Well, he could have gone on to Ethiopia to establish a church there. He could have had it in his mind. Well, this guy is not a very well-established believer. He won't know his scriptures very well. Maybe I should go with him. But that didn't even occur to Philip. He trusted the Holy Spirit enough to let that man go with the word of God planted in him and let the church happen the way it needed to happen in Ethiopia. Bill Hybel says this, if you want to be a leader, you have to put into place a relationship with God that allows the Holy Spirit to lead you, whatever the cost. And do you know, as I've been preparing this, I've just thought of, of our wee body and poured it down, and I thought there are so many Philips here. But I think we need more people to step up into that Philip kind of role as well. 
people who are first and foremost sensitive to what they're being called for in the particular season that they find themselves in. And then when they're being promoted, that they rise to it with a grace and a humility, all the while submitting to leadership and to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So here's our, our big significant one next, um, Saul Paul. <clears throat> Off the back of the persecution that just happens, a hugely significant breakthrough comes. Paul, who was the ultimate enemy of the gospel, he, ha he has an encounter with Jesus that completely wrecks his life and turns it 180 degrees in the opposite direction. He goes from trying to extinguish the message of Jesus to laying his whole life down for it. I mean, you couldn't get a more radical change of direction. Think about that. Either he was a complete lunatic who had lost his mind completely, or he had genuinely encountered the living God for himself. Nicky Gumbel likens this conversion of Saul to nowadays someone from ISIS who tries to obliterate Christianity to becoming like the pioneering head of the Christian movement. That's how radical this change in Saul's life was. And Acts 9 is a really long passage, so you'll be glad to hear that I'm just going to tell a narrative of it very briefly for the sake of time, um, but you're all probably very familiar with it. Luke makes it really clear that, that Saul's mission as a Pharisee was to just completely obliterate and wipe out all followers of the way and to stop the movement entirely in its tracks from going any further. In 3.9, it tells us that <clears throat> he encounters Jesus on the Damascus road, that a light from heaven flashes around him, that he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul asks a question. Who are you, Lord? It's a pretty good question to ask, isn't it? And Jesus, who you're persecuting, comes the answer. And then he was blinded for three days. Imagine that Saul's first time of intently listening to the Lord's voice was when he said, who are you, Lord? Because when God actually answers that question, it reframes everything about your whole life. It redirects the rest of your whole life if you actually take time to listen to that question. And then the Holy Spirit prompted a believer, Ananias, to go to Saul, which for Ananias was a huge threat to his own personal safety. Up to this point, everybody knew that Saul was the person who was just going to wipe them out, drag them off, throw them into prison and try and stop Christianity in its tracks. But thankfully, Ananias listened to the Holy Spirit, despite the cost in his own life, and he went. And in doing that, Ananias actually helped develop the new life of one of the most significant influencers of the church apart from Jesus. From verse 17 on, it says that he, Paul, Saul Paul regained his sight and then he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Luke tells us that scales fell off, off his eyes. And I suspect that Saul was now able to just really see all of those religious structures that are intended to hold people back for what they actually were. When the light of Jesus consumes you, there's a change in the mindset and the lens of your heart, it kind of focuses in to actually see things the way God sees them. And then it says that, that Saul went on to preach that Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews in Damascus and that he spent three years in Arabia. There's a lot of speculation about what happened during those three years. I'm going to add my own mix into it if you'll allow me to this morning. But I just can't help but wonder during those three years, what life lessons did Paul have to learn? I have a few reckonings and observations, and I really feel like this morning the Holy Spirit wants us to press into those as we all, every single one of us, step up to the next stage of our own personal development in the Lord. So here we go. 
The first one is that we need a long-sighted vision. It's really important to remember that back to Acts 6, the act of food distribution at heart was a really good thing. The Bible tells us to look after orphans and widows in their distress. So the heart of the ministry was a really God-honoring thing. But as the conflict arose among um, the Hebraic and the Hellenistic Jews, the solution that was Holy Spirit inspired was to identify the gifts and the calling that God had placed on those within the spiritual family and draw those people up and draw them out. The apostles had a responsibility to ensure that they were fulfilling the Great Commission. Do you remember the Didache that we touched on before? The Didache is the teaching that the apostles gave to the church, that Jesus was the hope of the world, that he died and that he rose again. And so the long-sighted vision of the apostles was to ensure that this was being fulfilled. And when they did that, the kingdom of God needed to go on a life of its own and it grew like a, a living and active thing. And so when it comes to all of the new leaders that we have already mentioned, so Philip and Stephen and all of the seven and, and Saul, the Holy Spirit living in them acted like a bit of a plumb line to ensure that the charisma, the pure teachings of Jesus wasn't being diluted or distorted or twisted in any kind of way because the kingdom message is always, always inclusive. It's not an exclusive thing. And if we make it exclusive, we are twisting the charisma of Jesus. We shouldn't have anything in place that makes church seem like an exclusive place that people can't come into. Paul is really one who carries this as a, like a fundamental core value within him because he was the one who was responsible for the good news going to the Gentiles, which in, in the mindset of that time just was completely absurd. It just, it, it just didn't even make sense that God would reach out to the Gentile nations, to the Jewish people. And that's likely why the New Testament was written in Greek, so that it could be accessible and inclusive to everyone. And so if we all want to continue in our development and become more like Jesus, we have a responsibility to hear from heaven for our own personal long-sighted vision and stick to that. We need to know the direction in which we're headed or we'll actually just never get there. We'll just kind of meander around like the people in the, in the desert, the Israelites in the desert, and we'll just actually not end up anywhere. The second point that I suspect <laughs> that, that Saul um, had to learn in those three years was that he needed to realize when to release other people. <clears throat> the apostles really realized the importance of staying in their own track, prayer, and committing themselves to the word of the Lord, and then releasing other people into theirs. It was a really simple method, but it was very profound because it helped to establish and maintain the church, and it helped to, it, the whole thing to gain more momentum. I think Barnabas, when you read on to the book of Acts, is just this superb example of, of how this happens. He was the first person to defend Saul to the apostles in Jerusalem because they were all still very suspicious about his motives. They wondered, was he there to actually trick them? Was he there to drag them all off to prison? But Barnabas was a risk taker. He had been sent to establish the new church in Antioch in chapter 11 of Acts. And he had this beautiful flourishing ministry there. God really moved. It says of him in verse 24 of chapter 11 that he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. There's those characteristics again. And that a large number of people were added to the Lord. Barnabas was the one who searched out Saul, who brought him to Antioch, and they taught there together for a whole year. 
Then together they returned to Jerusalem and they received a prophetic word that they were to be set apart. In Acts 13, it says, so listen to this, it says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that, that I've called them to. So Barnabas would have taken the lead at that point. He would have been the one in charge at that point. But then their ministry together was always noticed as Barnabas first and Saul secondary up until Acts 13 in Cyprus. And then it entirely flips over. Paul becomes completely ignited with the Holy Spirit. He confronts, he takes on this sorcerer. And from then on, they're referred to as Paul and Barnabas. Paul was now the lead person in the ministry. But I love this about Barnabas. He was totally, completely yielded to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And in searching out Saul, he actually forever secured his place as secondary. And he didn't really give two hoots about that. He recognized the grace that was in and on Saul, and he just helped to fan the whole thing into flame. And in doing so, what Barnabas actually did was help bring about the explosion of the church and most of the New Testament. And he didn't want any credit for it at all. He wasn't threatened by Paul in any way. He was happy to let him go for it. He didn't feel that insecurity rise up and that need to compete or anything like that. He was fully surrendered to the whispers of heaven. Because effective leaders look for people with better gifts than their own and they push them forward. But this is an important part, when the time's right. We should be really diligent about remaining humble enough so that we can joyfully embrace our unique role in God's story, all the while cheering everybody else on in theirs. Our confidence and our faith has to be that the, the true measure of our greatness is not in our earthly recognition as someone who has influence, but in the heavenly approval that we are all servants of the King. And so for our own personal development, we needed to have long-sighted vision and we need to, need to know the importance of when we release other people. The third point that I wanted to mention today is that leadership is a function. It's not an office. This week, things agreeing with me today, the last day, it was not my friend. Um, the Greek word to serve in this passage back in Acts 6 is diakonia. And really what it means is that you just have to serve. It's not about a title. It wasn't anything to do with recognition at all. What it actually just means was that, you, that these guys were called to serve and to minister to people. It's widely agreed, really, that their role was the practical servant and hospitality team. And the terms spoke more of what they did rather than who they were in terms of a title, if that makes sense. They were simply just those who served other people. The function of them all, all of them together, the apostles included, was to serve the community of believers. And when we assume leadership, we're actually giving ourselves away for the sake of others. <clears throat> a wee bit of our story in that um, many of you know that we were very involved in GROW um, and, and in the birthing stages of that. But it came a time in our life through circumstances that we had to just let go of it. Actually, it was the best thing for the ministry that we let go of it. But for us, I can't honestly say at that time, hand on heart, that that was an easy thing to do. It kind of felt a wee bit like our baby. We had a hard attachment to it. But after a bit of time, we got this revelation that developmentally grow was in its teenage years and we needed to be able to give it a wee bit of space to let it develop into everything that it had to be. We had to get out of the way to let it evolve. And so for all of us in this function that we have to serve other people, and particularly if anybody's feeling a start of leadership this morning, we must all become transformed to become more like Jesus. Our hearts shouldn't really care about the title. Our joy comes in serving and seeing the move of God. 
So we need to have a long-sighted vision. We need to know when to release others. And we need to remember that our function is to serve and give ourselves away for the sake of other people. The next one, I'm flying now because I realize we're getting closer to the end. And we're not saying to half 12. Uh, leaders own their own issues. Oh, let's just be honest with each other here, can we? We all have our own stuff going on, don't we? And if you don't think that you do, that's not good English. If you think that you don't, just have a chat with a couple of people around you. They'll probably be able to tell you what they are. And when I look at this group of newly appointed leaders, I think it's really clear that they had all just been so caught up in and transformed by the move of God that they were literally changed from the inside and then it showed on the outside. They helped establish the kingdom values and they ensured that the culture that Jesus exemplified was really being woven into their church family. And it's obvious because of how they're described, but it's also obvious because of what happened. The church began to grow. A really obvious example of someone who missed the boat entirely on this was Saul in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel. In 1 Samuel, we can see that God instructed Samuel the prophet to anoint Saul as king over the nation when Israel finally rejected God as their king, right? That's what made them distinct from the other nations. Samuel spoke prophetically over Saul, and Saul, after running away and hiding, like a like a grown man, and hid. But he reluctantly stepped up into that position that he was called to. But, and this is the pretty significant point here. <clears throat> Saul had the responsibility to grow into his calling. Samuel called out what God's ultimate plan was for Saul, but Saul fell really short, and it's because he didn't deal with his own stuff. He was constantly threatened by the success of David. He let all of the insecurities that existed in his heart to continue to nip at his heels. And every time David had a victory, it's like Saul's insecurities grew. It led to catastrophic, catastrophic consequences, mental health issues, marriages breaking down. Um, it just went, it just turned into a whole thing, a whole mess. And what actually ended up happening was Saul tried to kill David on more than one occasion. And it ended up, I think you conclude that Saul's pursuit of God actually turned into his pursuit of David. And he took the whole kingdom, and in fact, the whole kingdom went totally off track because Saul didn't just deal with his own stuff that was in his heart. And so if we want to be people of any kind of influence, we have to face ourselves and face what's going on inside us and keep our hearts constantly in check and let the Holy Spirit do his own work. Really, I don't think this is an exhaustive list. You can just go into any... A Christian or secular bookshop and see all of the things that people think that you need to be as a good leader. But this is what I felt that the Holy Spirit really wanted us to look at this morning. I imagine Paul and the other church leaders had to really press and lean into a lot of this kind of stuff because look at the result. Acts 9.31, then the church through all the countries of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace for a while. This is after the huge persecution that broke out. The church was made strong and it was given comfort by the Holy Spirit and it honored the Lord. So just as I close off here, I've been encouraged to share a wee bit of my own journey to leadership. Um, <clears throat> I sent this <laughs> to Al on Monday, Sunday night, and he had said to me two times before, maybe you could tell a wee bit of your own story, Brona, and I didn't quite know where it fitted, but then when he sent it back to me, he said, I think you should tell a wee bit of your own story. So three promptings to tell a bit of my own story, I had to sort of say yes. So I hope you know that when I say this this morning, I'm not saying it in, in any way because I didn't actually want to, other than um, to try and encourage you that God can stir what is in you and he will lead you into, into the more. 
I suppose when I reflect back on my own journey up until this point, I, I think I've kind of naturally just always fallen into like a leadership kind of role. Um, I was one of those really bossy children who <laughs> like to take the lead a lot. And uh, looking back, uh, there have been many, many sharp edges that have been smoothed off and a lot more that still need to be smoothed off. Stephen would take great joy in telling you all that I'm still very bossy. Uh, I <laughs> That's the first day I'm in of Huddle in the morning. <laughs> I don't say it like that. I say it as taking initiative, but hey-ho. <laughs> uh, but I have... I've, I, I've just found myself kind of in church and, and even kind of out of church, just kind of naturally falling into those leadership roles kind of places. And to be fair, for the most part, it was all kind of straightforward stuff like leading crash teams and um, leading cell. Um, it wasn't kind of really upfront kind of stuff until, um, we, until we went to help lead Bible college and then um, grow. But after a wee while, we took the step back from Grow after about three or four years of leading that, just because of the circumstances with the kids coming along. And, um, and we found that we weren't actually really leading anything in church. But we will, or we were, and we still are leading our family and ugh, learning how to navigate all of that. But at the same time, um, I was off school as well, having the babies, and then I took a two-year career break. So my whole identity and, and everything that I had done, it just kind of hit the floor I wasn't that person anymore. And during that time, in that season, because of the age that the children were, I was so detached from church. I, I basically lived in creche for four years. The kids, you know, they were just, they just were those kids that wouldn't stay. And while it was really lovely to talk to all of the other mummies, you never really felt like you're a part of the body. You know, you couldn't get in and worship and join in and everything that was happening and hear the vision and hear the heart. And um, honestly, that was a really spiritually isolating season in, in terms of my own spiritual growth. I was missing the teaching on Sunday mornings and it was hard to feel connected into the vision of church at this season. Podcasts are wonderful, but not every week, okay? You, you know, and, and this is why you can't do this stuff without being a part of the body. Like, it just doesn't work. It's just so, so counter to everything that we read about in Acts, you know, and I'm actually proof of that. But, um, I mean, motherhood, I hear my heart in this, motherhood is an, a beautiful privilege and honour and my deepest joy. Um, and I'm raising leaders, let me tell you. <laughs> I see so much of myself there too. Um, but it showed me so many aspects of, of God's heart that I hadn't tuned into before. So I, I'm so thankful for that season. But in the midst of it all, God was still at work. And he was working away in what for me kind of felt like the quietness. And looking back, which is usually the way we see things with clarity, isn't it? You know, he was using this time, I believe, for preparation of where we find ourselves now. And, and so we felt the call to come to Portadown and join in with everything that was happening here. But then we got this really, like, blow you out of the water prophetic word from a guy that had come over from England at a leadership development night. That, I mean, we just... We just could not ignore it. And in making the decision to leave Lurgan, I can't help but feel that God was checking out the condition of our heart to see, well, are you really for me? But then he came and confirmed um, through that prophetic word that we were doing the right thing. Honestly, hand on heart, and this is me being very vulnerable with you all, this has been the absolute most steepest learning curve <laughs> that I have ever had to experience. In the past, I literally cringed at the thought 
of being up at the front. I made a complete mess of the speech on Prize Day in my high school. I mean, it was it was just a car crash. It was a total car crash. Um, <clears throat> and I've had, I've had some really awkward experiences of being up at the front in the past. But my prayer in this season is that I have to just keep saying yes to the opportunities that God has sent in front of me. And I've actually always really been drawn to the prophetic and drawn to the appeal of teaching God's word. It's something that I've carried for a really long time. I remember being 20 and, and being in my house at uni and thinking, oh, I think I'd, I think I'd love to, to preach. I, th- I, think, I think God's really stirring up something in me about this. And I remember saying to a couple of friends, one said, well, women don't speak in church. It's actually so disobedient. It's like putting your hand on the Ark of the Covenant. That's how disobedient it is, right? I'll not take that any further. And the other one, <laughs> somebody else that I said, you know, I was actually a really trusted friend at the time. And I remember saying, um, yeah, just, I, think, I think in time God's, God's going to really, you know, open up this door for me. And she's like, do you honestly think that you could teach my dad, an elder in a church who's been an elder for years, do you honestly think you could teach him anything? So the door closed for me really significantly at that point. Unfortunately, I actually believed her. I was um, 20 um, didn't really have anybody around me to speak truth <laughs> into my life at that point. And I kind of thought, oh, maybe you're right. So that was the end of that dream. <laughs> but from the age of 18, I've honestly, and I say this with as, as much humility, and I hope that you hear my heart in this, but I, I've always just felt this long to live for kingdom purposes and to serve the church in the way that we find ourselves doing now. But here's the reality of it. It was nearly 20 years later before it actually happened. It was nearly 20 years later. I'm giving you a clue to my age there. The gray hair probably will anyway. (laughs) But in that time, I think I must have been a really slow learner, but I had a lot to learn about God, but actually, I had actually a lot to learn about myself. A lot to learn about myself. And every time I stand here now and give a prophetic word or have the honor of being able to try and teach you guys something, I am honestly bombarded by self-doubt. Totally, it comes at me like a wave. But now I don't really pay much heed to it. Now I realize that every time I do this, I just push back everything that the enemy has kind of tortured me with for years. And I intentionally try to step out of my comfort zone because it's the only way that we grow. And do you know what? In God's faithfulness, he always, always shows up and meets me for me. I don't know if he meets you, but he meets me and where I need him most. And so here we are leaning incredibly heavily on the Holy Spirit, trying to glean as much as we can from these other leaders who are so much more experienced than we are. But we count it as a a deep, deep, honest to goodness privilege to be able to serve you all in the way that, that we can. So can I just pull it all together and finish by saying that we as the lead team, and I think it's okay to speak in their behalf today, we see you. We recognize what you all carry as individuals, but we need your help to keep the movement going, for it to gain momentum. We need some of you to take a step out and to take that risk into what you feel God's maybe calling you. We want to reassure you that when the time is right, remember that wee bit. When the time is right, you won't have to strain or push your way into leadership in any form. The door will open when you least expect it. But our job collectively is just to trust the heart of the one who is planning out the journey for us. But see when that door opens, jump through it with both feet. 
give it the big, biggest yes that you have because I'm telling you, you will not know what has hit you in the best kind of way. So. Brilliant, brilliant, thank you. Um, so just, just as we're finishing, you know, I was listening to Deborah speaking there and I was thinking that, you know, so often um, it's the enemy that comes and fills us with doubt. It's the enemy that comes and speaks uh, lies into our lives that restricts us from um, doing what it is that God has called us to do because the, the devil is a liar and he's been lying from the very start. And I was thinking, you know, that, and the temptation that um, Adam and Eve faced, the devil comes along and he, and, he, and he says, did God say, did God say, you should not eat of any any tree in the garden? And he starts with a lie. But when Jesus is tempted, the devil comes along as well. And he says, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, two out of the three temptations are to do with identity. Um and, um, you know, for a lot of us, there are doubts that have come in our heads. And maybe, as Brona said, some of those doubts have been sown by other people. Sometimes they think they're being well-meaning, or maybe they are well-meaning, but still it affects us when things have been spoken over us, when words have been spoken over us, when we've been told we can't do things. And, and as Brona again pointed out, you know, at times, particularly women in, in the church have been told that they can't do things. And these these things, these words, they have an effect on us. They restrict us. Sometimes we have bad experiences, and, and again, we are robbed. Um, but God is calling us all, every single one of us, to step fully into our identity and, and into our calling. Uh, and when we're in church, when we're in community, in relationship with each other, we see the good in each other. And, you know, if we're confident enough in who we are and who we're called to be, we'll call out the good and others will we'll say what we see in them and we'll call that out. That's one of the, the main roles of the prophetic is to call that out. And so I hope that, that God has been speaking to you this morning and I hope you recognize that that um, he's calling us all to step fully into everything that he's called us to do and who he's called us to be. But I've been a, a leader of a church for, for over 12 years and one of the things that I see consistently is that a lot of people... Uh, don't like the word leader about themselves. They're like, I'm not a leader. I'm just a servant. And I'll let you into a little secret. The only good leaders are servants who have a heart to serve, who have a heart to bless others. Uh, and, and actually, it's not leadership that we should aspire to as such. It's, it's serving the body. And if it happens to look like leadership, that's okay. Um, but I remember years ago in church, we, we did a, a leader's night and afterward, and all these people just didn't turn up. And I rang them, we're like, why weren't you at the leader's night? Oh, I just um, help with the children's ministry. You know, but, like, but, that, but you're a leader. Let's not be afraid of the fact that when we serve each other, we lead in, in those ways and those capacities and that leadership looks like service as well. So um, let's, let's pray, let's pray together. God, we, we thank you for um, the ways in which you move in our lives. God, we thank you that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. That you have uh, identity, first of all, for us, God. That we would know that we are children of God. We would know that we are completely loved. And from that place of identity, that we have purpose. 
and that we have the journey of being called uh, into yourself, of being changed and transformed. And so we ask that you would move this morning in our hearts and minds. For those of us that uh, need to hear your voice restored in our lives where the enemy has come in and told us lies, God, will you bring truth? For those of us that don't believe in ourselves, God, may we know that you believe in us, that you see us as, as amazing people and you call us into um, your purposes and, and fully into our, our identity. So, God, we ask that you would move this morning. You'd stir us up. Um, you'd stir us up with the vision of being part of, of making Jesus known in our families and in this town and in this nation, that we get caught up in your great and wonderful story, that we all have a place, that we all have a part to play. So come, Holy Spirit, and make that real to us again. In Jesus' name, amen.